Then Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, Joshua, son of uh, Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, the message of the and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. You may be seated. Well, Dixie, well done with that reading and all those names. At this point, if you would like to uh, pass your communication cards to the center of the aisles or the ends of them, uh, our ushers will come along and they'll just collect those from you. And as Mark mentioned, if you would like to add prayer requests, it's an opportunity for us to pray for you as well. And so um, would 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 gladly be able to do that. So maybe if you just want to pass those along, Mark will collect those from you and, and uh, we'll... That would be helpful for us to be able to communicate. So um, I know it's a, it's a new thing for us, and so it's just, uh, it's just one of our ways that we can communicate a little bit more effectively with you, but also with you with, with us as well. So um, at this point, want to um, uh, just want to, a couple things. Uh, as I was preparing or considering this message on the, this series on the book of Haggai, um, I was, I, it was a couple weeks ago that I was just I had kind of I left the church and I went out to a hillside on uh, the corner of Edgemont and uh, John Lowry Boulevard. And there's an overlook that you can see most of you can kind of see a, a portion of of the city. And I was sitting there just praying and reflecting and just reading God's word and and uh, considering what does the fall look like for Thornhill. And and I was looking over the city and and there was just this deep sense that I felt that, God, you are going to call us to something that I'm not really sure what that looks like yet, but, um, but God, we want to be open to that. We want to be open to, to what you are going to call us into. And, and so as I began to pray about that ne- those next steps as a church, and pray about the openness that we want to be, we want to have in our in our position, our open-handedness um, to to the Holy Spirit. This this small book came to mind. Haggai is if you're trying to find it, good luck. Uh, it's two chapters long. It's in the Old Testament. You will need your table of contents to find it. Um, and and would encourage you to over the next three weeks to to follow along with us. But over the next three weeks, we are going to be exploring the question, what happens when God calls us into tough stuff? And, and I think we see in the book of Haggai that God, that, that God reveals his power, his provision, and his presence as we walk through the tough stuff with him. Let's pray. God, we want to, we want to be open to what you want to say to us this morning. Lord, it's been so encouraging to be able to see some of our young people lead us in worship this morning. 
God, it's been encouraging for us to be able to come alongside of each other and care for each other and minister to each other. We thank you that you give us this space to be able to share life together, that we could continue to build community. And we thank you that you do build community, that it's your idea. And so, Jesus, this morning we pray that, that as we open your word and as we begin to unpack some of it, would you open our ears to hear Jesus? Amen. So yesterday was my birthday, and one of the things that that we did uh, through my during that during the time of that during my birthday yesterday is we went for a bike ride, and so my parents came down from the from South Calgary or came up from South Calgary, and we went for a bike ride. We we went around we went down into Bowness. We we live in Silver Springs, and so we biked down into Bowness, and we biked about 13 kilometers, which. For some of us, was more daunting than others. Um, not naming any names, um, but uh, but for us, when we it, it was it was interesting as I reflected on my kids' ability to to bike and how they have vastly improved over the years from biking, where to the point now where they can bike 13 kilometers. It was one of those things that just seemed like it was an impossibility as we began to teach our kids how to bike. And I remember when our kids were young, and, and we tried different techniques with them just to help them kind of grasp how to balance and steer and pedal simultaneously. And, and I remember running alongside of them, holding the back seat of their seat and holding their handlebars and running alongside of them as they tried to just understand the concept of pedaling. And then as, they, as the pedaling became more and more familiar to them, as they became more and more comfortable with pedaling, then I would let go of the handles, but just have my hand hovering over their hand and running alongside, holding their seat. And, and if they over, overcorrected, I could grab the handlebar really quick and, and help them out. And then it got to the point where they were so comfortable steering, but I was still holding on to this seat that it, kind of that critical moment comes, right? Where finally you're running alongside and you let go and you kind of just follow along, hoping that everything kind of works together. And I, and I remember in those, in those moments how terrifying it was watching my kids learn how to, learn how to do this new activity. And, and as each of them gathered more and more speed, and they, as, they, as the balance became easier and easier for them, it was amazing how, to, how you, you could begin to see this, this change happen in their, in their understanding of what it was that we were trying to get them to do. You see, for Natalie and I, when we taught our kids how to ride their bikes, it wasn't just, we didn't just put them on bikes and say, we want you to get some exercise, so do it. We had this, we had this larger picture in our mind about why we wanted them to learn how to ride their bikes. For us, it was, we want them to understand the experience and, the learn and, and, and have the opportunity to learn something new. We also recognize that as they get older, it will be something that we can do together as a family. And so we we wanted to provide a space and an opportunity for our kids to discover something new about themselves, as well as a new skill set. You see, for Natalie and I, we could see in the distance, over the horizon, this goal for, for our kids of what could be. And we wanted to help our kids begin to to achieve that potential, to begin to take the steps that they needed in order to get to that goal. So over the next three weeks, as we explore the book of Haggai, can I suggest that this book is a lot like learning how to ride a bike? Where Haggai is beginning to hear God's voice. 
And God has now given him that goal on the horizon. Haggai's responsibility now is to help the Israelites get on the bike and start to ride. Now, unfortunately for the Israelites, the call that God is making is a pretty difficult task. It's a lot more challenging than just learning how to ride a bike. You see, the call that God has placed on the Israelites in this, in this book is to rebuild his temple in spite of a number of different obstacles that were, in their, in their, that were preventing this from happening. And so the title of this series is What Happens When God Calls Us Into Tough Stuff? As we begin to, to understand what is transpiring through this book, though, we need to understand that this isn't just as simple as riding a bike. But instead, this book is a call for the Israelites to realign their hearts to the covenant Abram had made hundreds of years before. Now, before we get too deep into Haggai, I want to spend a couple minutes unpacking what has happened historically but also what is happening contextually as this book is being written, just so that we have a better understanding of, of what is going on here. First of all, we need to know that Haggai was written about 520 B.C. But before that, we're going we're gonna to jump back even a couple hundred more years to King David. During the reign of King David, his wife Bathsheba gave birth to a son named Abraham, or sorry, wrong family, who gave name to a son named Solomon. As Solomon got older he, and David died, Solomon became the new king of Israel. Through Solomon's wisdom and leadership, Solomon became exceptionally wealthy. And one of Solomon's um, major accomplishments was to build a temple that he had built in Jerusalem. And as he did that, Jerusalem would become this, not, would become more than just the political capital of Israel, but it would become the epicenter for where the presence of God would be too. In the temple, it contained the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments. And this temple became this symbolic and sacred presence of God for the Israelites. Unfortunately, though, after Solomon died, division came upon the land. And it was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which represented about ten tribes. And there was the southern kingdom, which represented two tribes. That's where Jerusalem is, in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. The northern kingdom, though, after Solomon died, was ruled by a number of evil kings throughout its history. And they defied God. They were not good people. And as a result, God allowed the Assyrian army to come in around 720 B.C. They basically exiled, they kicked out all the Jews. They, they exiled them. This was known as, the, known as the Assyrian exile. The southern kingdom, they had a couple of good kings for, for them. That's positive. But they also faced their own exile about 100 years later from the Babylonians. Now when the Babylonians took over Judah, the southern kingdom, which includes Jerusalem, one of the things that the Babylonians did was they destroyed the temple that existed in Babylon. Or existed, let's try that again. Destroyed the temple that existed in Jerusalem. So, during the course of this takeover, the temple that Solomon had built, symbolizing the presence of God as it was destroyed and everything in it, except for a couple of things. One was all the gold and silver. They made sure to keep that. The implication of this temple's destruction in Jerusalem 
was significant because essentially what happened is it ended any sort of nationalistic or covenantal identity that the Jews may have had. And so they were, they were without a temple. And they were without an altar where sacrifices could be performed. And so sacrifices ceased for about 70 years. Until about 70 years later, when the new king of Babylon came around and his name was Cyrus. Cyrus decided to allow the Jews to return to Judah, the southern kingdom. However, they were under the watchful leadership of, of their appointed governor, Zerubbabel, who was actually a direct descendant of King David. But essentially, we need to know that the, Babylon, the Babylonian exile had come to an end. When the Jews returned within a couple of years, they, be, they actually began to rebuild the temple. To their credit, they recognized that this was a need, and so they started to rebuild the temple. But because of outside pressure from the Samaritans who had, who had, who had kind of moved into the, north, into the southern kingdom while the, while the, well, the Israelites were, were exiled in Judah, uh, the Samaritans lived there and there was pressure from them and the Babylonians to, to stop building the, the temple. And so there it remained for 18 years. Y'all caught that? <laughs> we covered about three or 400 years of Israelite history in about five minutes. I, sh- I promise you I missed things. But this is where we enter the story of Haggai, addressing this unfinished temple that has been sitting unbuilt for almost two decades. And so as I said, this, this book takes place about 520 BC. A couple things have changed over those, during those 18 years when the, when the exile ended. First of all, Babylon now has a new king. His name is Darius. At this point, though, the people of Judah who are in the southern kingdom They've gotten to a place where, where rebuilding the temple isn't really much of a priority for them any longer. They had moved on to other things in, li- in life. They managed to move on with their lives and moved on without God's, God, God's prioritizing. Prioritize, let me try that again. Try that without the P's. They managed to move on with their lives without God's presence leading them in any sort of meaningful way. Life had just kind of rolled on And they just adjusted to it. Except for Haggai. Haggai, who many commentators believe, he may have actually, in his younger younger years, had actually seen the original temple before it was destroyed in Jerusalem. So it's suspected that Haggai is 70, 80, 90 years old. And here he is, in his older age, and God is calling him to share this message with the people of Judah. Haggai is given this task to, re, to, to communicate to the people to rebuild the temple. Unfortunately for, for Haggai, there's this deep sense of complacency over the Israelites, where the comfort of life has seemed to remove any motivation that they might have to take on this daunting project of rebuilding the, rebuilding the temple. So there's this, this goal in the, in, in the distance. And Haggai's responsibility is, let's just get them on the bike. But no, the people of Judah, I'm not getting on the bike. I'm not interested in, in the destination that God is calling us into. What we need to remember here is that this isn't just a building, a, this project is not just to build a building just for the sake of building it. But sim- symbolically, it's about restoring covenantal and national identity for God's people. This isn't just a building, it's about them as people now. And this is where we see throughout these two chapters, 
evidence of God's presence, active and at work as God calls them into the tough stuff. God's presence, active and at work, as God calls them into the tough stuff. As God was calling his people into this substantial capital campaign project, the first thing he addresses in verses 2 through 4 is this attitude of self-preservation and complacency, where the people were, were they, 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 where Haggai wants to get them on the bike and they're just, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in where you want to go. This is what it says, verses 2 through 4. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And I love this. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the house remains, while this house remains a ruin? This is almost a sense of sarcasm that's being, being communicated here. Where God is calling out this, this fake spiritual attitude. He's, you haven't sensed God calling, calling you to build the Lord's temple, but did you feel your, the Lord's presence telling you to build your own paneled houses? God's saying here, you've you've prioritized your own house, your own fields, your own bank accounts over me. How do you expect me to bless that while my house is in rubble? In fact, I think what we see here is that not only does God not bless their efforts, but those efforts actually remain fruitless because the people don't have the favor of God. Which makes sense, right? Right? As a kid growing up, I remember that those times when I lied or when I stole or when I did something, mom and dad wouldn't, would not reward that behavior. They wouldn't say, oh, you stole something, here's $5. Oh, you lied, have a piece of cake. My parents recognized that they had a responsibility not to reward that sort of behavior. And I think the same remains true for God where he gives you and I the autonomy to make the choices we make. But we see here that that he won't bless those efforts either. So the proposition that God brings forward is one of two things. You can continue to live the lives you are living. You know, you'll get by. You'll manage on your own merits. Or, or, you can walk through the tough stuff and receive my blessing. And we can look throughout Scripture and we can see a number of examples where people walked through the tough stuff that God had called them into. And when they came through it, they experienced tremendous blessing because God was glorified in them and through them because of their obedience. The Israelites walking through the Red Sea resulted in the blessing of having their own land filled with abundance. King David walking through his own moral failure and was blessed by God because of his humility and vulnerability, his openness to confess those things so that God would be glorified. Paul walking away from his his entire livelihood to take up the purpose of Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego willing to, to, to be thrown into the fiery furnace for the glory of God. These are just four examples where God has called someone into some tough stuff, and he was present in it. Here's the thing, though. None of them knew what was waiting for them on the other side of the tough stuff. 
They just believed that God was present in it and that they needed to walk through it. I remember, I re- I remember about 10 years ago, I was going through some pretty serious season of discouragement in the church that I was serving at. And a number of things that were going on in my church and in my ministry, and one of the things that came out was some con- concerns about myself and my leadership. But, it's, and it's, but instead of learning from that feedback, how I handled it was really unhealthy. I began to personalize it. I began to internalize it. I took what they said and I took it personally. I felt like they were attacking my character and my identity was being attacked. I internalized it because I didn't tell anyone how I was feeling and what was going on. And so my, my first response as I was going through this tough stuff was to avoid it, it was just to run. And I'd come home and suggest to Natalie, you know what, maybe I'll be a teacher. Or maybe I'll be a firefighter next day. Maybe I'll be a police officer next day. I can't do math, so I'm not going to be a banker. But I know that I'm not going to be a pastor. All the while, while this season is happening, I'm asking the question, God, why did you do this to me? Why would you put me through this? God, this hurts. Make it stop, God. Punish them, not me. And I always came up with these different ideas or ways that I could run away from my problems at work. But you know the saying, wherever I go, there I am. So I would make excuses for myself. I, just, I tried to justify myself, my actions, my thoughts, my feelings. And I took all the feelings, all the, the comments that were being turned towards me and, I, and all the things that I was going through, and I tur- instead of absorbing them, instead I turned them back towards them and I, felt, I took all the, th- the things that I felt threatened by and I began to decide, decide to attack them. And I said, you know what, if they're, they're just being unreasonable. They're just being selfish. They're just consumeristic Christians. If only they were as spiritual and holy as me. Because it was everyone else's fault except for mine. And what I had to discover <clears throat> as I was in the middle of the tough stuff was that was I could either walk through it with Jesus or I could run from it without him. I could either walk through the tough stuff with Jesus or I could run from it without him. And this is the choice that God gives his people in Haggai. If they were to choose to walk through it, it wasn't going to be easy. But that God would be present with them. And the first thing that God does is he tells the the Jews that they need to take all the cedar that was in the mountains and use it to build the temples. It seems like a really obscure request. One of the reasons for this, commentators believe, is that because the, because the people of, that who lived in Jerusalem, they had taken all of the cedar around Jerusalem, and so there was no wood there to access to build the temples, and so they needed to go to, to the mountains now to build the temple, to get the, to get the wood from the te- for the temple. The other thing that's going on, on here is that God is saying, you know, well, you've spent the last 18 years prioritizing yourself. You spent the last 18 years focusing on building, developing your harvest, developing your crops, developing your bank accounts, focusing on your empire. 
building your temple. We need to spend some time building my temple now. We need to spend some time prioritizing me. So now the question is, will you walk through the tough stuff with me? Or will you walk away from it without me? And this is their response in verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They obeyed. They got on the bike. They, they revered the Lord, and they got on. And they chose to walk through the tough stuff with God out of reverence for him, believing that the presence of God would be with them as they walked through it. Where they became not just hearers of the word, but they became doers of the words too. It translated from understanding to now through their hands and feet. And as they walked in obedience, God provided his presence in their lives. And we see this affirmed throughout the book of Haggai over 25 times where it says, I am with you, declares the Lord. So here's why this is important. I think as we consider last week's message to be new wineskins for the new wine that God wants to pour into us, that for some of us, he might be calling you and I into some tough stuff that's going to stretch us pretty far. Some of you are already in it, where you're in the tough stuff. I've had several conversations this week, all kinds of health stuff, personally or with your journey with someone who, who is going through some difficult health stuff. Some of you are looking for employment and just, it's hard. Some of you are new to the country and, and this transitional time is difficult. Some of you are experiencing tension in your families, financial t struggles. You are in the middle of the tough stuff now. I think Haggai, though, reminds us that when God is present with us, the tough stuff doesn't get less tough, but something happens in us where we can know that God is present with us in the middle of it doesn't mean that he takes the tough stuff away, but it does mean that we aren't alone in the midst of it. When we turn our eyes towards God in the midst of the tough stuff, I believe that he is faithful with his presence in our lives. Can I, can I say this this morning, that I think sometimes we expect God's presence to be experienced in the form of emotion, though? where we expect to just feel him with us, where we expect it to be like this tangible thing where we just expect, God, I should be able to hold you, I should be able to feel you, I should be able to experience you in some form or fashion, and it should, be, it should create some sort of emotional response. I don't think that's always the case. For some, God's presence absolutely stimulates an emotional response. God's presence, though, moves beyond an emotional or intellectual experience but instead, it's an experience where the supernatural, divine presence of God intersects with our lives in such a way that the truths we read in Scripture are affirmed and experienced. Let me say that again. 
The presence of God is an experience where the supernatural, divine presence of God intersects with our lives in such a way that the truths we read in Scripture are affirmed and experienced. That the God we read about in Scripture gives us the authority we need to walk through the tough stuff because we choose to believe that God is present with us. Where we can walk with the assurance that God will help us to persevere through the tough stuff. Because even though it's tough, we know that Jesus is present with us. And it's in those moments, those moments where we just want to quit, the moments where we're discouraged or we're afraid, that it's God's presence that we cling to. Where we choose to believe that in Jesus, we find the strength to persevere when things are difficult. Stuff that we all go through at times. I gotta be honest. I couldn't imagine going through some of the going through the, the ten years ago. I couldn't imagine without Jesus. Some of you have experienced some really tough stuff in your life, and it's the presence of Jesus that has sustained you in the middle of it. And just like how I taught my kids to ride their bike, how difficult would it have been if I just put them on a bike and said, "Go." They would have failed. They would not have been successful. They would have not have achieved that goal that we had had for them. But how valuable, how valuable is it when we have someone whispering into the ear, watch out for that obstacle. Okay, you can do it here. Just turn left here. You can do it. I know you just fell here, but that's okay. Just get back up. Don't stop. Don't quit. I know it's hard. Just keep trying. I know you're in the dark. I know you can't hear my voice or see me. Just, just, I just need you to hear my voice. Just watch me. And I believe when we obediently walk through the tough stuff of life, we experience God's presence in ways that maybe we've never experienced before. The tough stuff has a way of refining us and, and opening us up to what maybe he wants to speak to us about. Truth is, is that the tough stuff often teaches us something new as he changes us to be more like him. As the, what's the presence of God today? One, obey the word of the Lord. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, you and I are the Lord's temple now. It's not the body of Christ is the Lord's temple. You and I are the Lord's temple now. It's no longer that building that was, that's being talked about here in Haggai. It's, that's us now. Now it's a group of individuals in a, in a community. And you and I are now faced with the same challenge as the people of Haggai. Build ourselves in such a way that reflects the glory of God. Consider our ways. Consider your ways. And then obey the word of God. Let his convictions become our convictions. Secondly, Make disciples. When we do something in the name of Jesus, we experience the presence of God. Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded them. There's that word obey again. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Even when things are difficult, we are called to reflect the glory of God. 
That's our purpose. We can see stories throughout Scripture where, where they take steps, in, take steps into places of risk. And they walk through the tough stuff that God has called them, called them into. And as we, as the temple now, obediently respond to God's word, I believe God shows up. When we are crossing over the Red Sea, when we are in the fiery furnace, when we are face to face with our own sin, Jesus meets us there and says, I am with you always. Go ahead, guys. <laughs>